Revelation 11. <clears throat> there is given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. Underline that phrase, the temple of God. <clears throat> the Jews will have a temple. They don't now, but they will then. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. <clears throat> For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot 42 months. That's talking about the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, Fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner, would you notice this, be killed. These, that is the two witnesses, have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And you can kind of guess this is talking about Jerusalem. <clears throat> and they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations. Can you imagine this now? The world shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to put, be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and, send, and shall send gifts one to another, if you can imagine that. <clears throat> because these two prophets tormented them dwell, that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life, from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they sent it up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. 
And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Father, what a startling chapter. Such preciseness on the timing and even the pronouncement of days and months and people. There's nothing you do not see. There's nothing that you do not know. And as you wrote here, you're not just God of the earth. You're God of the heavens. You're the God of gods. You're the most high God. You're God almighty. You're God only wise, only God. Lord, as we look at the lives of these two men, these two witnesses, <clears throat> stir our hearts. We look at this incident, which occurs <clears throat> during the tribulation period, stir our hearts. Stir our hearts, not just about what will happen, but what should be happening now. And we give you glory and praise for this. I pray for our audience that's watching tonight that there might be someone that's not saved. And in their heart and mind, they may be anxious and agitated. They need Christ. I pray they get saved tonight. Thank you for the goodness and grace of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last week we were in Revelation chapter 10 on the study of the little book. Great chapter there. I mentioned this. In chapter 10, we have an interlude, a pause. In chapter 11, we're still in that interlude and that pause. Go back to chapter 9. In chapter 9, we see that there were six trumpets that had been sounded, chapters 8 and 9. And... Um, the sixth trumpet was sounded, and we saw where these demonic entities will come up, and great havoc, one-third of the men on earth will be killed by these demonic entities. And uh, we're told in the scriptures here, in verse 12, chapter 9, verse 12, one woe is past, <coughs> behold, there come two more woes. Now, we're still, we haven't seen the second woe yet. And we haven't seen the third woe. We'll see it tonight. We'll see that second woe tonight. We're still in this interlude of time. When we ended chapter 11, transition, chapter 10, transition to chapter 11, in chapter 10, verse 11, the Lord said to John, He said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. He was getting John ready for his more preaching. And as he did so, John has given some instructions in chapter 11. I want you to notice in chapter 11, the emphasis is still on the preaching of God's word. Our hearts have been very hurt by the by events that have transpired 
these last two weeks. I preached about perfect peace this morning. The United States Constitution, the First Amendment, allows a freedom of speech. And people have exercised that right of freedom of speech through the means of protesting. They want their message to be heard. <clears throat> and they've taken to the streets in masses, irregardless of COVID-19, and they're trying to get their voice to be heard. They want change. They want social reform. And some of our young people growing up, this is all new to you. You're caught up with the emotion of the moment. You haven't been around long enough to see that there are many of these things that go by that happen during our time. And I want you to understand something this evening. Protesting while it gets the message across, that doesn't change hearts. And we must understand that God has ordained preaching. Preaching changes hearts. I want to challenge every parent, every home. Sit down with your kids. I don't care how old they are. If they live at home, sit down with them. And you need to reinstate with them the authority of preaching. Because even here in the book of Revelation, God gives preeminence to the preaching of his word. Preaching changes lives. Preaching changes a nation. It was preaching that brought about the great awakening and the revivals. And you need to study that and read about that. It's preaching. The world despises preaching. It calls preaching foolishness. But God uses preaching. And I want to remind you tonight, we need to be sensitive to that matter. We need to be sensitive to the fact that all the hurt in the nation Protesting is not going to help the hurt. <clears throat> in some cases, it exasperates the hurt. I don't know about you, but when you have medicine that makes you worse, that's not good medicine, amen? We've got a family in our church who has, a church who has a family member right now getting medicine that's not really... He does, his appearance doesn't look like it's having to get any better. And if you're the family member, you're thinking, do we discontinue this? And I'm just saying to you today, while we're concerned about everything going on, as a church which has the living word of God, and God's word changes lives, it does. I mean, God's word does change lives. The gospel changes lives. We must be intent on getting people to hear the gospel. And all of you know somebody that's hurting. And you should use your influence in a good way right now to draw them to the word of God and find that our Savior Jesus Christ makes a difference. The Apostle Paul knew something about hatred. He was a hater of the gospel. He was the hater of Christians. In fact, he abused his authority. He went and hailed them, the Bible says in Acts chapter 9, to the high priest. But along the way, he met somebody greater than him. That was Jesus Christ. He literally saw the light. And Jesus knocked him off his high horse. He realized 
He needed change, and Jesus changed his life. And instead of trying to change the society he was in, his way, God changed his heart. And the Apostle Paul was the greatest reformer of the first century next to Jesus Christ because, because his heart was changed. He went on and he changed continents, he changed cities by starting churches and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just study the book of Acts. That is a place of spiritual regeneration. It is not reform that's going to change your society. It's regeneration of the heart that's going to change your society. So we get to chapter 11, and the emphasis is on preaching. God identifies two men that he calls his two witnesses. Now this is important. Because in the book of Revelation, Satan has his two witnesses. We see one of them here. Whatever God has that's good, wipe this down. Satan always has, he has, a, he has an imitation, but it's always a fake imitation. It's a knockoff good, if you know what I mean. These two witnesses have a significant role on behalf of God during the first half of the tribulation. Notice the Bible speaks about the temple being measured and be tread underfoot for 42 months. That measures exactly three and a half years. And the ministry of these two witnesses is, is uh, 1,260 days. That equates to three and a half years. These two witnesses are God's, are men of God that God raises up during that first half of the tribulation period. Now, God has always had his witnesses. God has always had his messengers. He had Noah during the, the time of the antediluvian age. He had Elijah when the nation went into great apostasy. He had 7,000 alongside of, Noah, uh, of Elijah that did not bow their knees. He had Elisha. He had Isaiah, as we've been studying through the book of Isaiah, during a time of apostasy from King Ahaz. He had Jeremiah. Nobody loved Jeremiah's message. He had John the Baptist. God always has his witnesses. Tonight we want to study these two witnesses and their significant, the significant role that the Bible helps us to see that they had during the tribulation. If you have your notes out, notice number one, we see their appointment. <coughs> verses one to four. Their appointment. Notice in verses one and two, the place of their appointment. There was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. Where is this place? The place where these men are ministering specifically is in the city of Jerusalem. God put these two witnesses in Jerusalem to preach his word. Now, it speaks about the temple of God. What temple is this? It's not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 583 B.C., it's not Zerubbabel's temple, <clears throat> which was built. That was destroyed by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C. It is not Herod's temple. Herod's temple is destroyed by General Titus in 70 A.D. Right now, th the spot where this temple we're looking at will be established during the tribulation time. Right now, that spot is the Mosque of Omar. It's an Islamic mosque. It's been there for many years. In 1947... Israel reestablished itself as a nation. On June 7, 1967, the Israeli army moved itself into Jerusalem, and the Jews reclaimed Jerusalem on their day. Go look it up in history. I remember being alive that day and it being across the headlines. I was a child then, but I still remember that. 
Their general, General Moshe Dayan, got up and was quoted by the media saying this, no power on earth shall ever remove us from this spot again. Now the Jews occupied Jerusalem. We've seen significant things happen. President Trump moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem during his term there. He understands prophecy enough to know something there. But the temple has not been rebuilt yet. They asked General, da they asked General Moshe Dayan, they said, well, they said, uh, they said, well, Bible prophecy talked about a temple being rebuilt. He said, there's a mosque there, the Mosque of Omar. How do you think this will be rebuilt? And General Dayan, with a smile on his face, well, maybe there will be an earthquake. We don't know, but we know this. At the start of the tribulation period, this person that we know, and we're, we're about two messages away from looking at the Antichrist, this beast, the Antichrist, the Antichrist will establish himself as a, as a world leader. He will be a power broker. He'll establish peace with Israel. He'll do some monumental things to get acceptance for Israel. He'll get a large remnant of them to come back and resettle in Israel, and he'll help them in rebuilding their temple on that temple site. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I want you to see something. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. That's why you need to be on current events and studying what's going on and comparing notes and knowing what's, what's happening because prophecy is unfolding very quickly right now. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man is sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now that day is talking about the great tribulation. The man of sin, the son of perdition, is talking about the Antichrist. Now notice this. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, the falling away is a great apostasy. I spoke about that several months ago as we were going through our series in 2 Thessalonians. The Antichrist will establish himself in Jerusalem. He will be a power broker with Israel. They will think he's the best thing since sliced bread. Things will be going rosy. And then he'll break that peace pact at the end of that three and a half year period. And I believe that breaking the peace pact will, come, will be commensurate and coincide with the death of these two witnesses. Because these two witnesses that we're reading about here, their ministry commences at the beginning of this tribulation period. And ends right around the three and a half year mark. Because at the three and a half year mark, things break loose. The wrath of God takes a step up against the world. I mean, there's a lot of bad things that we see happen there that we've, we've seen already because of the trumpets and the sealed judgments. This great, this Antichrist who will be Hebrew to the Jews will turn on them. He'll break this peace pact. He'll turn on them. And notice what happens here. We're given some foresight here uh, about this. We're told in 2 Thessalonians 2 that he will want to be worshipped and exalt himself. And the Bible says he will assume control in the temple of God. The temple that is not there now will be rebuilt. There will be a temple there. Now, when in that, first, that great tribulation period will happen, I'm predicting it will be somewhere there in that first year. I mean, things are going to move very quickly in, in, in pro, the prophetic timeline there. John was told, notice in verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1, to take a reed and to measure the temple of God. Now, if you study Zechariah and some of the minor prophets, we see the God using that same idea of taking a reed and using it as a measuring stick. It was typically about nine feet long, if my memory serves right. The rod, or reed if you would, 
was symbolic of God's judgment. Whenever they were told to, they were to measure something, it was an indication that that specific area was going to be under the judgment of God. Now, if you study Daniel a little bit, you know what's going to happen in that temple. We know the abomination Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24. The abomination of desolation will occur where the beast will desecrate the temple. I think he'll do something very similar to Antiochus Epiphanes did when he, when he invaded the temple during that time. And he desecrated with pig's blood and things of that nature there. And I just want you to see tonight, without getting into all that, because we'll get into a little bit more as we get further to, into, into Revelation, the place where these two men will be, will be ministering will be there in Jerusalem specifically. Now, because we have the internet and satellites and the ability to get real-time on news and things of that nature, the focus of spiritual things will be on these two men. I mean, people will see real-time everything going down there. These men will minister there in Jerusalem. Secondly, would you notice... Their appoint, the period of their appointment. The Bible says in verse 3, they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These men will have a brief but extremely intense three and a half year ministry. They're going to prophesy. I'll say more about that in a minute. Three and a half years. They're going to preach. They're going to tell like it is. I believe these men even know they only have three and a half years. Now I'm going to ask you a question tonight. If you knew you only had three and a half years to live, what would you do with the last, those three and a half years? If you, only had, you knew you only had three and a half years to do something for Jesus, what would you do? Would that change your life or you just keep on going the way you are? These men... We're there, we'll be there in that first three and a half year period of time. And they're going to preach away in the city of Jerusalem. Secondly, notice in verses 3 and thirdly, what you notice in verses 3 and 4, we see the place, we see the period. But I want you to notice the peculiarity of their appointment. The Bible says they'll be clothed in sackcloth. Now sackcloth was kind of a mohair type of garment. You wore sackcloth. It indicated mourning, sorrow, judgment, fasting, etc. I'm not really sure it's going to be the same kind of sackcloth that men wore in the Old Testament. But perhaps the fabric will be a mohair type fabric. I think about Dr. Lee Robertson who wore a double-breasted blue pinstripe suit the entire term of his ministry. He was very predictable. You know, same suit, double-breasted, blue pinstripe. These men will be very predictable. They'll be wearing sackcloth. And it's gonna be, they're all business. They're not comedians. They're not using the pulpit for political agenda. The pulpit is meant for the preaching of God's word, the communication of God's word. These men are called God's two olive trees. Look at verse 4. Now, I'll say more about this in a minute, but you want to put a notation in your scripture there about Zechariah chapter 4. The as olive trees is symbolic of their anointing and God's power in their lives. 
They're also called two candlesticks. They're light in a place of great darkness. This symbolism of being olive trees and candlesticks reminds us of God's two olive trees he had in Zechariah 4, Joshua and Zerubbabel. These men are two witnesses. Jews who know their Bible or their Old Testament will be seeing some similarities in the symbolism. The Bible tells us this, notice verse 4, these men stand before the God of the earth. I'll be honest with you, I read that, that shook me up. Serving God is serious business. Preaching is serious business. Teaching a Sunday school lesson is serious business. They stood, they will stand before the God of the entire earth. These men have an appointment. They're chosen of God. They have a unique personality. They have a unique ministry. They have an appointment. Secondly, would you notice their ability? Verse 4, actually verse, verse 6, actually verses 4 to 7, tells us these men have power. They have unusual power. I mean, verse 6 says they have power to shut the heavens, that it rains not. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with plagues as often as they will. You know, God gave them unusual power to send plagues. I, I'm envisioning the same type of plagues that God sent on Egypt through Moses, they're going to do here. Uh, the Bible tells us that fire will proceed out of their mouth and will devour their enemies. Not sure about that, but it just that's what the Bible says. And uh, as olive trees, and I wish I had time to break this down and to tell you about it, but Zechariah 4 tells us about these olive trees that provided the fuel source for the lampstands there, the candelabra. That created a great, great picture in the mind of the Jews. The Feast of the Tabernacles, I, I preached about this before in John chapter 7. The Feast of the Tabernacles, the Jews during that, that week, they would take these great uh, containers of oil and they'd light it up. And it lit up the entire city of Jerusalem and would give, kind of a, give us an idea what Jesus meant a city uh, uh, lit on a hill. And uh, the oil that they used was olive oil. Olive oil was used for the anointing of kings and God's prophet. Olive oil was used as fuel. Olive oil was flammable. Olive oil is a picture of power. Olive oil is a picture of God's power. These men are called olive trees. They're full of the power of God. Just like Micah talked about. He said, I'm full of the power of God. These men are prayed up. These men are filled with scripture. I'm not sure what they're preaching, but I'm going to tell you what. They're preaching the Bible. They're preaching God's word because God's word will be there. They are filled with power. These men are kind of like what, what the psalmist said in Psalms 92, I shall be anointed with fresh oil. These men will have a fresh anointing each and every day. These men have power. These men can preach. Notice verse 5. 
It says fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Now I know that that's probably speaking about literal fire, but I want to tell you, I believe it also talks about their prophesying. I believe that's also talking about their preaching. These men will prophesy. Fire will come out of their mouth, that's them. These men will preach effectively. Many of the Jews that we read about in the previous chapters who get saved, that 144,000, I believe that these two witnesses will be very instrumental for a lot of these Jews getting saved. I believe these men will help take the scriptures and weave it in such a way as they preach the word of God. It will be extremely compelling and convicting to these hardened Jews from all the tribes of Israel of realizing their need of salvation. They will preach effectively. They'll come under the influence of these men and get saved. These men will preach earnestly. It says, fire will come out of their mouth. There'll be fiery messages to come, cut to the heart. I'm going to tell you what right now, with everything going on in our world and our society, we don't need soft preaching. We don't need political preaching. We need fiery preaching. We need preaching that's on fire for God. And these men will preach earnestly. They will preach with endurance. I want you to understand something. These men will preach every day for three and a half years. They're not going to be conversing like the typical pastor talk. What's your day off during the week? They're not going to have a day off. These men will be preaching. They're not preaching one time a day. I imagine these men will be tag teaming. One will preach one hour. Then the next one will preach an hour. Then the next one will preach an hour. You say, what are they going to preach? I'm going to tell you what they're going to do. They're going to know the scriptures so well, they're just going to open up the word of God. They're going to preach away. These men will be preaching. They can preach. These men will be able to pray. Notice verse 6. These have power to shut heaven that it rain on in the days of their prophecy. Hey, keep your finger there. Go with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Instead of me reading it, you find, I want you to read it with me. James chapter 5, verse 16. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. These men are effectual, they're fervent, and they're praying. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, he had the same weaknesses like you and me. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Why was Elijah at the brook Kirith? He spent that time praying. He wasn't idling time away. He wasn't twiddling his thumbs. He wasn't playing crossword puzzle. He wasn't playing angry birds on a cell phone. Amen. He was praying. And he prayed specifically that it rained down on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Would you go back to Revelation? They shut the heavens that it rained not during the space, the days of their prophecy. What were the days of prophecy? Interestingly, three and a half years. It's interesting what we give ourselves to prayer to, what God will accomplish. Power to shut the heavens. We read some of the judgments of God. Earth will be scorched. Climate will change. These men have a lot to do with it because of their praying. Notice their practices in verse 6. They'll have the ability to turn water into blood. 
You know, people during their lifetime, they have the opportunity to drink the living water, Jesus Christ, and get saved. But because they reject the living water, their water will be turned into blood. It will be undrinkable water. They'll smite the earth with all plagues. I believe they'll be revisiting of anthrax diseases. Moraine on cattle. I believe there will be great hail that's going to come down. And we read about this. Hailstones weighing almost 100 pounds in weight. And you can imagine, 100 pounds in weight, that's how they weighed. Think about how much the velocity coming out of the sky, what that means. The multiplication of frogs and beetles and lice and flies. I mean, these men are going to be back up there preaching with their practices. Notice they're protected. He said in verse 5, if any man will hurt them. Do you get it? Do you get it? They're not popular. They're hated. We're living in a society right now, greatest concern that's boiling over is hatred. Hatred is a sin. But we see something very interesting. These witnesses are preaching to turn the world to Christ. The world does not want to receive their preaching. So they hate them. They reject their message. They want a social gospel, not a biblical gospel. So they, they'll try to hurt them. Now I'm not sure what they're going to try to do. I believe they'll be like what we've seen these last few days. They may try to shoot them. And they'll be stopped. They may try to hit them with a baton. They'll be stopped. They may try to stab them. They'll be stopped. They'll try to pick up rocks and stones and stone them. They'll be stopped. The Bible says, and if any man will hurt them, God's going to protect them. God says, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. God's going to protect his servants. God has a timeline. Three and a half years. Three and a half years doesn't sound like a long time. But it's a long time when if you're doing it every day, you're trying to get God's work done. They're doing it. Now I want you to think with me for a minute about the extraordinary abilities of these two witnesses. Fire coming down. Shutting the heavens that it doesn't rain. Doesn't that sound like Elijah? Power over the waters to turn them to blood and smite the earth with all plagues. Doesn't that sound like Moses? The Lord gave us a prophecy, Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Someone said, well, wasn't that John the Baptist? John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. When he was even asked, you read this in Luke, he even said himself, I am not Elijah. Many believe God will send Elijah and Moses. They'll come back to earth to do this. Now when you read Revelation 11, I'm just going to tell you what Revelation 11 says. It does not say specifically that they're Elijah and Moses. 
Many believe this could be them because Moses and Elijah met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The very works that are mentioned here are the same supernatural works that Elijah and Moses did. I'm not decided yet myself because the Revelation 11 specifically doesn't say that. But many hold to, the, to what they believe that that's Elijah and Moses. But I'm going to tell you what tonight. We're not going to split hairs tonight debating whether or not it's Elijah or Moses. I'm just going to tell you one thing tonight. These are two very powerful witnesses of God. We just know this. These are men who in three and a half years will make a dent on the earth. They're trying to get the world pointed to Christ. I believe that many of those 144,000 who get saved, that go around the world to preach the gospel, will be the fruit of this, these men's ministry. I believe these men, a lot of the disasters that we see happen on the earth, will be because these men prayed for those disasters to come. I'm just saying today, as we read this, this, this statement here, we see these men, and they have an unusual ability that God gives them. Let me say this tonight. The God of these two men is my God and your God too. And our God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I ask you tonight to pray with me for a God to do great and mighty things beyond what we ask or even think. We see these men and their ability, thirdly, would you notice these men and the antagonism? Verse 7 says, when they have finished their testimony, God has a timeline. You listen to me tonight. When God's done with his servant, he's done with his servant. Don't you try to move God's servant along. Don't you try to change God's timeline. God said, when they finish their testimony, that's three and a half years. The Antichrist, and notice the description here. He's called the beast. And I want you to understand, the idea of a beast is of a very ferocious, dangerous animal. The beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them. And kill them. Look at verse 10. Verse 9 and 10, and we saw this earlier in verse 5. The world that rejects their message is against them. You see, during three and a half years, there's a growing antagonism against what these men preach and believe. And don't fool yourself. There's an antagonism right now we're going to see unfold in the months to come against the church and against God's word. And as much as we try to be loving and helpful, I want you to know there's a rejection of God's truth. Verse 10 says, verse 9 and 10, that all the people of the world shall see their dead bodies for three days. And a half. And verse 10 is very pathetic. All that's on earth, and you can imagine, you can imagine on the internet, over every news station, cameras focused on those men's bodies lying in the streets of Jerusalem. 
And the Bible says in verse 10, the world will rejoice over them. And it makes an interesting statement. They make merry and shall send gifts one to another. It's like one preacher said, it'll be a Christmas time that the people will be celebrating by sending gifts. One. I mean, can you imagine? World leaders will be sending a gift to each other, celebrating the death of God's two witnesses. How pathetic can that be? The greatest hatred is the hatred of the Antichrist. When their time and their work is done, God will release the hedge that's about them. Their servants, his servants have earned the reward. And the Antichrist will make war with them. And the Bible says he'll be allowed to overcome them. And the Bible says he will kill them. Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. The context of when Jesus spoke that was to the Jews, as they asked him about, when will, the, when will the end of the world come? The ye is speaking to Jews who are living for Christ. I kind of wonder when Jesus spoke that, if he even had in mind the two witnesses when he said that. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the key phrase is living godly. I want to encourage you right now, while we live in a society that's trying to morph us and conform us into its image, the Bible tells us, be not conformed to this world. The Bible tells us to live godly. Live for Jesus Christ. I challenge our graduates, you'll hear it from your sponsors, I challenge our graduates, live for Jesus Christ. Take a stand for God. If you're going to bend your knee, bend your knee to the Lord of lords and King of kings. Fourthly, we see their assassination. The beast will kill them. What a sad thing. God doesn't describe the nature of the death, but I believe it will be horrific. They're going to be assassinated. However this Antichrist does it, the whole world will see it. When the work is done, these two witnesses go down. I think about God's martyrs. These two men are among those great martyrs during the tribulation period. I think of Antipas. I think of John the Baptist. I think of Isaiah. I think about these martyrs. I think about James, the brother of John. I think about the Apostle Paul. I think about those apostles who gave their lives for the gospel. These men were killed, they were martyred, they were assassinated because their message and their Savior was hated. Notice the abuse. The Jews, when someone died, out of respect for the body, moved to quickly have a ceremonial burial of the body. It was considered a desecration to leave the body out. Do you notice their bodies are left 
in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half years. The Bible says in verse 8, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. Spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt. What a terrible description of Jerusalem. Of the evils of Sodom. The evils of Egypt. Where our Lord also was crucified. And everyone will see their bodies. Their bodies will be abused. They will not suffer them to be put in graves. Their bodies are abused. The world is celebrating their death. But you notice their ascension. Verse 11 says, and after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. They stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they sent it up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. The Bible tells in verse 11, the spirit of life from God. You know, that's what every sinner needs right now, the spirit of life from God. They need to get regenerated. These men are already saved. Something remarkable is going to happen. In three and a half days' period of time, the look of death is already flesh in their face and in their skin. There's a pale color when death occurs. But you'll notice these men lying there, and I'm, I'm not trying to be humorous or anything like that, but there's going to be color, the color of their face and their body's going to change. And where there is a lifeless form, you'll see movement. You'll see kind of a jerking of the knees and a movement of the hands and movement. And the Bible says the spirit of life from God will come into them. And these men will stand up on their feet. I don't think they're going to stagger. I don't think they're going to look like they were knocked out. They're going to stand up with great life. The life of God is in them. They're going to stand up and everyone's going to behold them and look at them and wonder, wait, I thought they were dead. And there will be fear on everyone. Great fear upon all them which see this. And then there will be a voice from heaven in verse 12 that says, come up hither. The same words, the same invitation, the same command that will draw us up into heaven. These men will be raptured just like we're raptured. And then as they're called, called up hither, they will ascend up into heaven in a cloud. There will be an ascension of these men. They'll go up into heaven before the Lord and their enemies will behold them. Listen, there'll be the ascension. It'll be saying God's way of saying to them, you may have hurt their bodies, but you can't take their soul. You may have, you may have thought you killed them, but I control their life. And you may have thought you've snuffed them out, but they are my servants and I'm going to reward them. And everyone on earth will see this. It'll be caught on the internet. It'll be seen by satellite TV. It'll be seen by everyone. It'll be reported. It'll be kind of the buzz of the news of that time. Though these be the greatest sense of these men. It'll captivate the minds of those people. Then as we close tonight, would you notice verse 13, we see the aftermath. These people in verse 12 will hardly get out of their mind what they just saw. You see, those people on earth, they missed the fact that the rapture had occurred three and a half years before. They missed the rapture themselves because they didn't get saved. And those who had heard the gospel before that, their hearts became more crusty, more hardened, and they believed the lie. But they'll see this. And their minds embedded in them is this colorful image of the two witnesses of God, alive, their eyes open, their flesh with living, with living color, 
a voice from heaven, come up hither. And as they send to be caught up in the clouds with the Lord, the Bible says in verse 13, at the same hour, there was a great earthquake. And notice what happens. One-tenth of the city of Jerusalem will fall in this earthquake. Now, there was an earthquake when, when Jesus rose from the dead. This earthquake is going to shake some things up. Tenth part of the city will fall. Buildings will collapse. Roads will break up. Houses will fall. Buildings will be demolished. Walls will fall down. And in that city, notice verse 13, 7,000 will be slain. God specifically is telling us the aftermath of these two witnesses, God's going to send an earthquake to shake these up. Now remember this. Remember this. This is still part of the first woe. This is still part of the first woe. Six trumpets have sounded. We haven't heard the seventh trumpet yet. And the Bible says in verse 13, the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. And then it says in verse 14, the second woe is past. We have the sixth trumpet. 200 million demons are terrorizing earth. We have this interlude. John eats the little book. He's told, thou must preach again. And then God gives him a rod, and he's to measure the city of Jerusalem. Because he's getting a glimpse of the fact the temple is going to be rebuilt. Now, when John was alive, the temple would have been destroyed already. Titus had already come to Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and he destroyed the temple. He didn't know about the Mosque of Omar. At least the scriptures don't indicate that. He's measuring the temple. He sees these two witnesses. He's writing this down. The two witnesses preach for three and a half years. Great miracles follow them. God says their testimonies finish. God allows the Antichrist to kill them. Three and a half days, their bodies are lying in the street. Jerusalem is described as Sodom and Gomorrah. And then God gives life to these bodies. The voice is uttered, come up hither. These living bodies are taken up, spirit, soul, and body into heaven. And as these people are processing it, it says in that same hour, however time went by, we don't know. But in that same hour, God sends a great earthquake that shakes the city. One-tenth of the city is destroyed. It collapses. 7,000 of the men in that city die. And those who are remaining, the survivors, they, give, they have fear and give glory to the God. Now watch this. There's an awakening, but there's no revival. Did you know there can be an awakening without a revival? Did you know people can be shaken up without turning their hearts to God? You know what I'm saying tonight? We need to be a people right now. We need an awakening with the revival. We need to be revived by the fact the night cometh when no man can work. We need to be revived right now that the day is coming, the harvest is past, and people are still not saved. We need a revival in our heart. And notice now, the Bible tells specifically, at that moment of time, the second woe is past. What's that second woe? A tenth of Jerusalem is destroyed, and 7,000 of its inhabitants are killed. And he says, now the third woe cometh quickly. And here we read in the closing statements here, the closing verses, in verses 15 to 19, the
the seventh angel sounds. While everyone in Jerusalem is giving glory to God, but they haven't given their hearts to Christ to be saved. The Bible says there were great voices in heaven. It is making a statement that will be heard. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign for and ever and ever. Why? Because of that three and a half year mark, as we'll see, the Antichrist is going to wreak havoc. And he wants the Antichrist to hear and know. He wants Satan to know your, your ministry, your time period is short. It's limited. We're going to see that in chapter 12. Satan's time period is short. He knows it. That's why he's working overtime right now. But God wants him to know that God owns this kingdom. And God owns this earth. And Jesus shall reign forever and ever. Listen, everything might get us upset. Everything might get us in upheaval. I want you to understand something tonight. Jesus reigns forever and ever. The 24 elders fall upon their faces and worship God. And notice what they said here. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art in us and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and his reign. You see, in the midst of disaster, catastrophe, rioting, murder, bloodshed, calamities, catechismic chaos and all that, we need to pause, as we said last week, and remember, God reigns. God's on the throne. God doesn't change. Earth might get all upside down, but God is still right side up. God never changes, no matter what happens in this world. And the nations were angry. And thy wrath has come. And notice this. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And thou shouldest give reward to thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great. And shouldest destroy them which destroyed this earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, great hail. I close with this tonight. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. We are seeing things unfold. I just said this to one of our men. Who would have thought we'd see some of the things we're seeing right now? You think this pandemic is bad? Wait till the tribulation. There won't be one pandemic. There won't be one COVID-19. Can you imagine rat populations proliferating around the world, spreading disease everywhere? Can you imagine if it's just the Mediterranean Sea turned into blood and sustainable sea life destroyed? Can you imagine the ozone layer being destroyed and being scorched by the sun and hating it? Can you imagine men wanting to die for five and a half months, but they're not going to die? They're going to be tormented? Can you imagine the agony going on? Judgment is coming. And we go about 
worrying about our little jobs, our little pet peeves we get excited about. You get annoyed with someone in the body of Christ because they didn't do it your way. When you're to, Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. And we get to debating about things that are nothing, as the Bible says. When we should agree on Jesus Christ, we should be on the same page right now of saying, let's go forward, let's preach the gospel, let's do what we can. Let's make what sacrifice we can. Let's pay the price. Let's get busy for God. Hey, listen, you're not going to be on fire for God sitting in front of your fireplace watching the fire crackle. You're going to get on fire by, for God by getting the fire of God in your soul and going out and doing something for Jesus Christ. I'm concerned. I'm really concerned. The judgment of God is coming, and we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. We're worried about what the government's going to give us when you need to be worried about praying down God's power from heaven. I'm worried about the fact we've lost in a generation of young people to secular philosophy, humanism, evolution. Atheism. We've lost a generation of young people to being politically correct. Let me just say tonight, Paul said, I am what I am. You are what you are. Don't be sorry about what you are. You're a child of God. Don't be sorry about that. You are what God made you. Don't you be sorry about that. You accept what God has done in your life and just say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul said. Stop picking up the rhetoric of the unsaved community. And why don't you memorize your Bible and learn the word of God and say, by the grace of God, I'm a child of God. I'm going to live for the Lord. Don't look at Zoom time as entertainment time and, and just joking around time. You ought to be serious about Jesus Christ and realize that Zoom time is a, as a, is a terrible substitution for God's people of assembling and meeting together and worshiping God. God never sent a revival through Zoom. I need 3,000 men right now that will volunteer to be part of a cleanup crew when we restart our church. I don't want to have to go around recruiting you guys. How about some of you guys just saying, Pastor, have enough humility. And by the way, humility is a great virtue. Last time I read my Bible. Say, Pastor, I'm available. I need some people that will start sacrificing again. Stop worrying about timing of everything. Realize the time is short. Jesus is coming anytime. We don't need more debates. We need to die to self. Get revived in our heart. These two men, I can only imagine, they pour themselves out for three and a half years. 
and they'll be hated and despised. Christian friend, as we close tonight, why don't you get some love in your heart for the Lord? Get some love in your heart for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Get some love in your heart for the church of the living God. The Bible says, Judgment's coming. The great day of his wrath. There are trials in our church right now that are unannounced. Hearts are heavy. Big trials. Frightening trials. But you get some humility, die to self. Paul said, if ye then be risen with Christ, that means seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Whatever time God gives us, we don't want to waste it. Be ready to move. Be ready to take a stand. Do it now. Paul said, when we put on the whole armor of God, he said this, and having done all, to stand. We've done everything we're supposed to do, we're supposed to stand. Let's stand. Let's stand for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross.